Mac Power Users, Episode 118, Resolution. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, along with David Sparks. We're almost at the end of another year, David. Yes, we are. Isn't that great? It feels good starting a new year. It does. It kind of feels like we're we're getting a fresh start on things. It's a good opportunity to look back. And, uh, you know, as, as geeks, it gives us an opportunity to kind of set some priorities and, and goals for what we want to do with, with all of our technology and stuff uh, in the year ahead and think about some of the stuff that has happened in the past year and, and, and what we can do better. And that's kind of what we wanted to do with this show is look back at, at some of the problems and some of the areas of frustration we've had in the past year and how how are we going to make that better or what are the things that we need to resolve to do better in our technology lives in 2013? Yeah. So our show is a mix of of nice little, you know, kind of hacky stuff you can do now that you're in the year to kind of get a clean start going into the next year and some nice idea for computing habits of one sort or another. And we just got a kind of a collection of them. But before we started, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about habits in general because I think this is kind of fascinating um, you know, creating new habits is, is really hard work. And uh, I know a lot of people say don't do it at the new year because it's you've got enough on your mind. You know, it's it's a hard time to do it. Like I always hear the diet people say don't start your diet until like the week after New Year because there's still, still too many parties going on and stuff happening. But um, there's this really great video on the TED Talk by Matt Cutts about 30-day challenge. And, you know, when you want to start a habit, you got to really like hit it for 30 days. And, you know, this is one of those things where I'm prepping for the show and I kind of go down one of these these rat holes, for better lack of a better word, and I, I just get lo- okay. lost in it. Um, and, it, you know, that led me to this great site, well, to the Wikipedia article, but this great idea of neuroplasticity. Have you ever heard about this before? No, that scares me a little bit, honestly. No, I, I love it. It makes me so happy because, you know, I'm I'm old, right? Oh, well, I'm in my 40s. And you think, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, turns out you can if they there's some... Um, research out there where they're talking about uh, the way the brain works. And if, if the brain starts getting new inputs and starts getting new habits, it will actually cut new grooves and wire up new circuits to make things happen, even when you're an old guy like me. So the good news is there's hope for us all. It's not a question of, you know, the, uh, the way you got wired when you were a little kid, you're stuck with for the rest of your life. And that, that really makes me happy. I'm going to put the link in the uh, show notes. And then that, you know, I always thought about it as it was described to me as like cutting a new path, you know, when water comes down a mountain, it's going to just first cut a little path and then it's a stream and then it's a big, you know, flowing river. And sometimes you can cut new paths through your brain if you start doing the stuff with getting good habits. And so I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And I, of course, you know, because I'm a geek, I went looking for an app and I found one. And it's called Good Habits, and it's an iOS app. I think I paid two bucks for it, but it's really pretty. It's laid out really nicely, and you know I might have even been free now that I think about it. But anyway, so hmm. you can set up a series of habits, and every day you can just go tap that you did it. Like I've got one in there about flossing my teeth. I have the morning floss and the afternoon floss. People do that? Really? I thought that was just something my dentist made up. No, man, I actually do it. I love my teeth. And I want to keep them. So uh, what I do is in the morning when I do the floss, I go on the little good habits and I tap the button. It's very satisfying. And then in the evening before I go to bed, I floss and I tap the button again. And it gives me a running list of how many days I've been consistent with the habit. And it also gives me the longest streak I've had. So if I forget or if I'm, you know, I, was, I just did a trip and I went to dinner and... 
you know, came home and crashed in bed and didn't floss. So then I broke the streak and it made me angry. But either way, now I'm starting over again. I'm at one again with my uh, nighttime floss. But just think about all the things you can do this with. Um, you could do it with like checking your mint balance or your banking or, you know, anything like that. And some of the stuff we're going to talk about in this show are new habits that we think aren't a bad idea. And it could even be something like, you know, backing up your computer. So anyway, uh, go check out good habits. And for those of you who think that you can't change some of these things, turns out you can. So let's get started. Okay. So the first thing I think we need to do is, is 2012 was, has kind of been a year of, of a lot of security issues. There have been some security breaches. There's the big epic Matt Hahn hacking incident that really brought a lot of attention to Apple nerds like ourselves because it's it's was scary. Um, and, and it and right there, taught us that we were vulnerable. Don't you think that's it's interesting because the collective conscious about computer security up until very recently has always been, I'm going to get a virus. You know, when you go somewhere, always people ask you, well, what virus software do you place and how do you get a virus in your computer? And now I think people are more concerned about online security than viruses. I think they should be. Yeah, and I think they should be. So the focus has changed. And so our tools need to change. Right. So I've put a couple of things in place this year to to help with my security, and, and I'm looking for more ways to implement them in the next year. And one of the things I've put in place this year is two-factor authentication on pretty much any account that I can find that will support it. And the big the big thing that prompted me to do that was was the Matt Hahn hacking incident. I, I do use Google Mail uh, or Google Apps that uses Gmail for a couple of things, and two-factor authentication is available on those accounts. And basically what the idea between behind two-factor authentication is you have to, in Google's case, it's every 30 days if you've elected to trust a specific browser, uh, is you have to prove that you're you. So if if I come over to your house, David, and I try to log into Gmail, um, and I haven't logged in from your computer within the last 30 days and told it, yes, it's okay to trust this computer for 30 days, it's going to say, okay, Katie, I recognize your username, I recognize your password, but I want you to alternatively enter this code. And the way that I've got it set up, you can have it send you a text message, but I've got the Google Authenticator app on my phone. Um, text message works too. I Previously, when I initially set this up, I didn't have unlimited text messaging, so I just downloaded the Google Authenticator app. And it's pretty easy to walk through. Google's got a bunch of videos, and it, you know, it took me about 30 minutes one night to figure out what this all was and set it all up on all of my accounts. And you, in my case, you either get the text message and you you type in the number, or you go into the Google Authenticator app, and it and it rotates. I think every minute um, a number that it will show you for your device, and you have to type in. I think it's like a six or an eight digit number that changes every sixty seconds. And if the number matches, it will give you access to your account. So the idea is, you not only have to know your username and password which is most vulnerable to these these hacking or social engineering attempts. But then you also have to give one other method of identification to show that you're you. And in this case, you have to have my cell phone with the Google Authenticator app on it. And because I have a password on my cell phone, you have to have access to my cell phone. So you're much more likely to actually be me logging into my Google account from a strange computer than you are to be David trying to hack into my email from his computer. Because I, you know, I know you do things like that. Yeah, right. Um, so. I, I do the same thing, and I do that with my PayPal account. And that's one that I always worry about because, you know, we have money in there, and my family and I, you know, we spend money on PayPal occasionally. And the uh, there's an app 
called a it's it's released by Verisign and it's called VIP Access. I'll put the link in the show notes. And you can go in your PayPal account and set this up. So every time you log into PayPal, it is going to send you a six-digit code to your phone. That's like the the Gmail one. I believe this one is only 30 seconds. And you have to type that in, and it's always you know rotating. So in order to get into my PayPal account, you're going to need my name, my account name. You're going to need my password, and you're going to need my phone. Now, and I think that's a good use of two-factor authentication. Uh, the question is, how come it's not on iCloud yet? That's true. Um, another place I've implemented it is Dropbox, because with Dropbox, you can implement it and use it with the same Google Authenticator app that I use with my Gmail accounts. So it's very convenient for me to do it with Dropbox. The Dropbox implementation of it is is really only for when you're initially setting it up on a new, when you're logging in um, on a on a site or setting it up on a new computer. I don't remember. I don't think it it prompts you for anything when you're installing things that access Dropbox on iOS. You just have to um, have that Dropbox security password on iOS. So it's it's a good step. Um, so there there are other services. I think you can um, that you can add two step authentication to. Those are probably the big ones. But there are some downsides to two step authentication that you need to be aware of, or two factor authentication that you need to be aware of. Um, if you lose your phone. Or in some cases, I've heard people of when they restore their phone, although I never had this issue. When I moved from the iPhone 4 to the iPhone 5 and did a restore and backup, my Google Authenticator came over perfectly. But if you lose your phone um, and you have to get access to your stuff, that can be a major, major problem. Now, there are some backup methods that you can use. For example, Google will give you um, some uh, I don't remember what they call them, but they're basically like, um, you know, secret security codes that you can use as last resort. And if you if you lose your phone or you don't have access to it, you can enter one of these codes. And once you've lost them, you've, you've burned them type thing. Um, and particularly, there were some concerns about two-factor authentication on Dropbox, because if you, you know, couldn't get access to your Dropbox account, couldn't get access to whatever you needed, um, you know, you could you could really find yourself locked out of some data. So I've actually printed out those those backup codes and I've I've stuck them in my safe and hopefully I haven't needed them. Hopefully I won't need them. But it, it's a good thing that you do need to be aware of all the risks and benefits of, of two factor authentication and, and make sure that you've got a plan B, especially because if somebody else needs to get into your account for you, they're not going to be able to. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But yeah. uh, the Dropbox thing is in particular concerning because of one password because if you've got your one password database there and you lose your phone you get a new phone and you're unable to re-enable Dropbox because you don't have that two-factor authentication to get drop you know Dropbox running then you can't get into your one password database and then you're really locked out and uh, and one password is probably where you stored your passwords and maybe your backup security codes right exactly so you you put yourself in a box uh, so, and they wrote a nice article about this at one password and they said, you know, if you're going to do it, make sure that you've got that access information somewhere that you can get access to it, even if you're far away. And it could be something where on a trip, you leave it with a trusted person where you could call them and get it over the phone or, you know, I don't know, but that's something to be concerned about. And and they raised an art- a point in this article that, that they wrote on the one password blog that I thought was really good. That you know, data accessibility is also a form of is an important factor of a security system. You know, if you make it so secure that you can't access it, like if we wrote down all our passwords 
on a piece of paper and then we threw it in the fire, it would be ultimately secure, right? Nobody can get it, but nope, you're going to have a problem with accessibility, you know? And, you know, the, so the balance of security is always a challenge. And um, if you're going to do two-factor authentication on your PayPal account, I think by all means, Gmail, I think absolutely. Uh, Dropbox, uh, I would recommend reading this article from 1Password and making your own decision. I think you, there's a case that'd be made for either side. Yeah. You just need to be aware of, of what you're doing yeah. and, and the potential consequences and, and, and take responsibility for that. Because if you enable these extra security steps and all of a sudden you find yourself locked out, well, you did it, yeah. right? So I, I want to jump ahead just a little bit. And while we're on that same topic of two-factor authentication, one of the reasons that in the first place I implemented this was my Gmail account. But then I also started thinking about um, recovery email addresses, and and how all of my email is is interconnected and how all of my accounts are interconnected and if if i one of the famous things that sites do that i guess they kind of have to because they have to provide a back door but it is notoriously insecure is that you know hey have you forgot your password click here and they will either email it to you or they will email you a link to reset your password and I get that there has to be a backdoor if you legitimately have forgotten your password or there's a problem to, to get into these services. But if it is your email account that has been compromised, um, which is, again, why I set up two-factor authentication on these email accounts, and I think all of a sudden makes Gmail a very compelling email service provider over a service like iCloud, then then you're you're really in trouble. So what I have started doing is I've started going in and um, moving my recovery email addresses not to uh, to a completely separate email account that I have uh, because I you know like many geeks I've picked up a couple of email accounts over the years you've got that problem too I'm sure yeah. So what I've done is I've tried to consolidate them. I've had email accounts forward to other email accounts, but I've set up this totally separate email account that doesn't use my same naming convention that I use with all my other email accounts. So somebody wouldn't be able to guess, oh, I bet Katie's Gmail account is whatever at gmail.com. It's a totally separate um, recovery email account that I have two-factor authentication on that I use for my recovery email address for all of my mission-critical passwords. And so I go check it occasionally just to keep, you know, make sure that there's no spam and that the account is active and everything. But anytime that I have a legitimate issue and I need to recover uh, an account and it's, it's happened once with my iCloud account. I don't remember what happened, but I had an issue with it. It's going to go to that account and, um, and recover my password. Yeah. So you could set up a separate Gmail account called, you know, David's passwords at gmail.com or something like that. Please don't call it that, but yes. But either way, you know, you could set up a separate account and put two-factor authentication on it. Then every time you sign up for a new website, say, you know, the recovery email is David's passwords at gmail.com. And that way, if someone gets into my, my iCloud account, for instance, they're not going to be able to go to all the sites and say, send me my new password. Correct. And that would solve Matt's problem that he had this year. Yeah. Okay, well, there, that's a really good idea and uh, something to think about. Uh, let's talk a little bit about these social networks and security. Okay, um, you don't. You're probably ultimately I have the, secure I have the because ultimate. Yes, you know, I do Facebook them. security, best security yeah. you can get. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I don't like about these social networks is that they they try to get you Facebook in particular to use their Facebook Connect service. 
Um, and, and I understand why it's so convenient. Every, nobody wants to remember all of these different username and passwords for different accounts. So here, look, you can click here and sign in with Facebook, right? That's a sucker's game. Don't do that. Yeah. And, and that's just kind of one of my other security tips for, um, for this is, is disconnect all of these connected accounts because that just, you know, all of your, all you're doing now is giving them a single point of failure, which means if somebody gets access to your Facebook account or, um, there was an, there was another one that was going on. Was it open ID or something like that? You can sign in with your open ID account yeah. or some services will let you sign in too. with Twitter. Yeah. Um, you know, that's one of my big things is, is don't, you know, it's, I understand why people want to do it, but don't log in with Facebook connect and don't log in with all of these other services, create new unique, uh, passwords as, as much of a pain as it is for all of your other services. Because again, all you're doing is setting yourself up for a single point of failure. And, you know, it's also creepy. I I don't think Facebook needs to know every service you're connected to. And I don't think they need to be, you know, it just seems to me like the next level, because Facebook is a company that makes money uh, collecting information about us. And the more you give them, the more they're going to have. And at some point, the more they're going to be tempted to sell. Hold on to your privacy a little bit. I mean, maybe that's outside the scope of this topic. But, you know, in addition to the security concerns, it's also just creepy. I mean, and, you know, get an app like 1Password or whatever your password manager of choices and, you know, be a big boy and have separate passwords for these accounts. Yeah. The, the other thing that I've, I've stopped doing because this was a direct result of the Matt Hahn hacking incident is I have been trying to be very aware of where my credit card is online and what credit card I'm using online with what account. Um, previously I, you know, I, I think we all were a little bit paranoid maybe 10 years ago, maybe maybe not that long, maybe longer. I don't know. I I have a hard time putting a gauge on these things Um, because we were all worried about putting our credit cards online, right? Because online wasn't safe, but yet we had no problem giving our credit card to the, you know, the 19 year old at Chili's doing, you know, who knows what with it in the back room. And I I certainly don't mean to imply that anybody at Chili's would do anything bad. I, I love Chili's. They've got a really good queso dip. But oh, I was I just going to say that the <laughs> chips and queso. Every time we go oh, there, it's really good. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, um, and I also like their boneless buffalo wings. But enough about the advertisement for chilies. Um, so th- at one point, I thought a really good practice would be: okay, I've got two credit cards. I'm going to have one credit card that I use primarily online, so that if anything ever gets compromised or exposed online. I just have this one credit card that's being compromised. And I'm going to have another credit card that's just kind of my everyday credit card that I use around town. And then I just kind of realized that that didn't seem to make a lot of sense. And um, that was kind of one of the, the – that was actually the the point of failure or the point of access for the Matt Hahn hacking incident is is they they had the last four digits of Matt's credit card and – and you know how they got it, and that whole issue was a, a whole other issue where the companies need to address their privacy policies. Um, but just in general, having your credit card stored and linked online, why do these companies need to have this information to begin with? So um, I've done a couple of things. My bank offers, and, and I think this is kind of their name for the service, but they're different names for different services that are available. Um, my bank offers this service called ShopSafe, where you can set up these um, – 
uh, fake credit card numbers. Not, I mean, they're not fake, but what you do is it, it all links back to your account. And what it will do is it will auto-generate specific credit card numbers for specific sites. So what I've done is I've gone in that, that only lasts a certain amount of time. So I've gone in and I've set up uh, in that you can create spending limits for. And once you use this particular number on a particular um, provider, it cannot be used in another provider. So I've gone in. This doesn't work well with Amazon, by the way, because when you buy things from Amazon, sometimes you're getting charged by Amazon, sometimes you're getting charged by warehouse deals, sometimes you're getting charged by somebody else. But I found that it otherwise works. So I've got a shop safe number associated with iTunes. And um, so I go in at the beginning of the year, because I think the most you can make them last is 12 years or 12 months. So I go in the beginning of the year, create a shop safe number for my iTunes account, because you have to have a password associated with iTunes. Um make a, um, you know, put a pretty generous spending limit on there that I hopefully won't go over for the for the year. And that is my credit card for iTunes. It's not actually a real credit card number. But if that card were to get compromised for any reason, um, they that number can't be used for anything other than iTunes. Yeah. And you can set that up and you can use it for other services. And then the other thing I do is I just make sure that I do not check the box that says save my credit card for future use. And never, never do that. I mean, there's just no reason, you know, like let's say you're shopping at a reputable company and you know, you trust them. You've bought things from, from them for years. Um, It doesn't matter because if somebody hacks their system, no matter what they did and you, you know, companies can spend a lot of money trying to really protect your data and do it in ultimate, you know, in absolute good faith. Uh, But they're still, you know, subject to getting hacked and it still can happen and your data will be out there. So just don't put it there. It it actually makes me a little, you know, nutty that it's with Apple, you know, through the iTunes, but it's just so convenient. And I don't, I don't even know if it's possible to use iTunes account without giving them a credit card, but the, um, it, to the extent you can avoid giving it to anybody, just don't simple yeah, advice. I agree. All I right. Agree. Hey, maybe. So are we ready for a break? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. All right. Well, let's take a break and talk about our exclusive sponsor for this episode and, and how appropriate for this episode. And that is 1Password. And 1Password has a lot of stuff going on right now. They have just released version 4, brand new version, brand new app for iOS. Uh, it is currently on sale. We're not quite through the end of the year yet. It is currently on sale for $7.99, which is more than 50% off. So hurry up and get it before the end of the year. Yeah, if you've only uh, got a couple days now when the show goes live. So... Yeah, make sure you grab it. And this is another reason why you should listen to our show the moment it comes out. (laughs) Absolute moment it comes out. Um, uh, And they've also got a Mac App Store um, version. It's uh, available for $49.99. But the thing about that is it is a free upgrade to version 4 if you purchase it in the Mac App Store now when it comes out. And 1Password will take care of a lot of this stuff for you. Um, It will remember all of your passwords. It will generate safe and secure passwords for all of the sites you go to so you don't have to use services like Facebook Connect. It will remember your credit card numbers so you don't have to save them in various websites for convenience. And it just takes care of all of this hassle and it makes a lot of these things that we're talking about in this show a lot easier. And I want to talk about some of the enhancements that they've put together in version four for their iOS app. And one of my favorite enhancements, and I don't know if it's got an official name, but I'm going to call it the little swipey thing that you can do because I've got a lot of websites and I've got a lot of logins that I go through with one password. And when I log into one password and I see my list of, of, of potential, um, 
of, of websites or credit cards or anything that I happen to be looking for in my one password vault, um, all I have to do instead of what you could do is you could open it, you could steal your information, you can copy your password, you can copy your username. But instead, if you just swipe on the title of any given item, you'll get a couple of icons. Uh, one icon is a star, which means you can make it a favorite. And if you make it a favorite, it'll show up on your first page of one password and you can store all of your frequently used logins. I use that on my iOS device all the time for things like my iTunes password, for my bank password, because I use my phone for um, check deposits. That is so cool, by the way. Um, for my Amazon password that I use with my Amazon app and all of those passwords that I'm frequently entering into my iPhone, I designate as favorites. So you can designate something as a favorite. The other thing that you can do um, is you can, it's got a little clipboard button looks like a clipboard. And if you click that button, it is smart enough to know if this is a uh, website pass or a website uh, field. It's it's smart enough to know that you probably want to copy the password for that website service. If you've got a username and a password, it will copy the, the password field. If it's a credit card that you've got inputted, it figures you probably want to copy the credit card number. So it will copy the credit card number field. So you go to the bank, right? Then you go to the 1Password app, swipe, Tap uh-huh. the clipboard and then go back go back to the bank app and you're in. Yeah, I usually don't even go to the bank app first. I just go to one password first and do that. Yeah. The other thing that you can do, the third icon they've got in there is a little globe. And they have got an amazing web browser built in here that we'll talk about a little later. If you want to launch the site that you're trying to log into um, in the one password app as opposed to just copying and pasting the information to launch in mobile Safari, just click the globe and it will launch the site with all of your password information, log- username and whatever pre-filled in um, and it will go there for you so you don't have to go back out and, and relaunch mobile Safari. It's it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I, it's and at $8, you can't beat it. So version four is out. Go get it now. It's going to get more expensive in a couple days. So uh, don't miss out. Yeah. And uh, thank you to 1Password for being the exclusive sponsor of this episode. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about them later. Okay. So another resolution I've got, and this one isn't, this one is more of a habit, I think is a good idea to start, is starting a diary. And uh, we talked a little bit in last week's show about how you use day one to track communications at the office. I use it in a much more traditional way. I started a diary and um, I've been doing it now a couple months. I, I wrote about this like a year ago and it just never took off. And the problem I had was I was, I just never could find time to do it. Um, but now I'm really, I'm really committed. And so I've got day one, the day one app, which I think is just a fantastic diary app. And it's on the Mac, it's on the iPhone, it's on the iPad, it's gorgeous, uh, allows you to save in Markdown or plain text. So the stuff is going to be around forever. Um, and it's just a really fantastic app. I would recommend getting that. I wouldn't even look at anything else if you want to start doing a diary. But so what I did was I knew I was having trouble finding time to stop and write it. I spend a lot of time writing every day. And it just seems to me by the end of the day, I'm out of gas. So what I, I've done is I've got a little Sony recorder that saves in wave format. And I've, I always am in the habit of dictating sometimes when I'm driving. So as I'm driving home at the end of the day, I just turn on the recorder and just record for a couple of minutes talking about whatever it is I'm thinking about or whatever my current hangup is and a little bit of introspection. And when I get home or maybe I'll let them add up for a couple of days, I'll, I'll plug it in. It's got a little built-in USB port, plug it into my Mac and just drop it into Dragon Dictate, which the new version of Dragon Dictate, by the way, is amazing. It just is, is better than ever. And now it can 
transcribe a recording. So you copy the WAV file to your desktop, have Dragon Dictate transcribe it for you, and then paste it into uh, day one. So it's a really nice little workflow, and it allows me to keep a diary. And I honestly don't keep this diary for the purpose of, you know, people after I'm dead going back and reading it, but it's it's purely for my own um, for my own use. You know, I can go back and see what I was thinking at a time, and also it just kind of helps me get my head clear about things that I'm, you know, currently in the middle of. So I, I think that would be a really nice habit to start. You've got the technology to do it already. Day one app isn't that expensive. Um, if you've got time to sit at a keyboard, then you don't have to goof with the whole you know drag and dictate thing I just talked about. But take a few minutes every day and uh, start doing a diary entry. And I think this is one of those thirty day things. You know, plasticity. You got to get that that habit built. <laughs> but uh, I think it's really useful, and uh, I would recommend doing it. Yeah, you know, I don't do a personal diary. I've just I've I've never done one and maybe I should. But I have started using the Day One app. I, I talked about it in the last show, so I won't get into too much detail. I have started using it as a professional diary. And it took me a little while to get in the habit, but it has stuck and, and I think it probably took me about the one to two month time frame before that was where I was going all the time. But I'm I've used it as a professional diary and every time I get on a phone call or every time I have a thought about a case, or every time I have a meeting with someone, whether it's on my iPhone, my iPad, or just the little, they, there's a little widget that you can keep up, or not a widget, but a menu bar item that you can keep up in your menu bar, as opposed to opening the full day one app that you can just pop open and, and type a quick note into. And so I've been keeping it as a as a professional diary, and then going back either at the end of the day or scheduling at least an hour from four to five uh, every Friday at the end of the week. And reviewing my diary entries and then making notes and making tasks and pulling out what are tasks that need to come out of this? What are things I need to do? What are things my assistant needs to do? What's research that needs to come out of this? And and it has really helped. Um, you know, I, I wish there was a way that you could – maybe I would do this, you know, because now my day one is is full of all my professional information. I, I wish there was a way you could do this and maybe have a personal and a professional diary because I would, I would probably try that, but – you know, it's funny, Katie, I, after we did the show last week, I went and looked at it and the idea of what you were doing, which I thought had merit, but then I looked at the way I do it currently. And what I do is for each active client and each matter, I've got an NV alt, uh, text file. And it's got things like if I've got a, you know, case Pinot or VNF, right. I've got the people in there, the judge's name, the courtroom, the opposing lawyer's names, you know, just a whole bunch of like little information, case numbers, stuff like that. But then at, at some point in there, I've got a, and all this stuff is done in Markdown. So I've got a heading one called, called com log. And under that, every time I talk to somebody or get on the phone, I just do a quick text expander date and timestamp and then write up a quick summary of what happened. And I like what I do better because it's all self-contained in this one text file. And I can see the whole history of it just by going through there. And I'm sure you could, I guess, search it out in day one. Um, but I, I'm going to stick with the way I do that stuff. But the other thing I didn't want to do was was mix that stuff because I, I really am enjoying this this whole diary process. And I don't want to put a bunch of lawyery stuff in there. Right. Or, now, didn't um, – was it Brett who did this or was it Brett who wrote about this? We'll, we'll find it and put a link in the show notes. Um, have some kind of Apple script or, yeah, or some kind no. of magical guru. Yeah. Brett Terpstra made this thing called slogger. Slogger. That's it. That's right. That will. Yeah. It's amazing. So you can create a whole bunch of hooks. Like every tweet gets dropped into day one 
And, you know, there's a whole bunch of things you can do with it. So it, it captures all your social media and creates day one entries for them. So kind of it in, installs a robot on your Mac that, that, in, you know, improves the amount of day one data. I think it, like, it can pull your Instagram photos. It can, it can do a whole bunch of neat, neat tricks. And I looked at it, but I, I don't want to do that. I, I like the intimacy of this little diary that is a hundred percent built by me. And, you know, in day one, you can add pictures, you know, like if, if I see something interesting, I take a picture of it. I may add it to a diary entry, but I, um, I've only been at it about a month now, a month or two, I guess I started in late October. So I'm really uh, enjoying it though. And I would recommend if this is something you're interested in, just go by day one and give it a shot. Okay. I, I like the app a lot. It's a great app. I think it won an app of the year award from Apple didn't it? Yeah. I couldn't remember if it was this year or last year they won it, but it might. I think it was this year. Yeah. It was this year. So um, another thing I, I want to talk about is um, something that I've I've kind of been dealing with, not for me, but for other members of my family. And it's it, it's really made me stop and think about it's, at some point, either I'm going to have to do this for myself or somebody's going to have to do it for me. So why don't I go ahead and get a, a jump start on it? And I, I want to be real careful here because we're kind of starting to cross the streams a little bit. And we said we'd never talk about legally stuff. So no, this is I, okay. I want, this is okay. I want to keep this on the tech side. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, the the subject is geek estate planning, and neither of us are estate planning attorneys. So that is correct. So you can so, take yes. it with a grain of salt. Right. Um. But but the bottom line of it is, you and I are really geeky people, and we're probably the most geeky people in our families. And if something were to happen to us, whether it were something bad and we were to die, or or really really bad, or if it were just something bad and or or even not so bad and we were unavailable or incapacitated or not able to to get access to our stuff and and somebody needed to step in and take over for any period of time um the bottom line is somebody needs to be able to get access to your stuff and and keep things going if you're not able to yeah um and and I started thinking about it uh, you know if if I was out of commission for a month how would my stuff get done? Would would my bills get paid? Would my family know um, what stuff needed to be done or where my healthcare surrogate was or what life insurance I had or the fact that I had a disability policy or, um, you know, all of this other stuff. So in my case, most of the, all of the, I've tried to make this as easy as possible. All of my stuff is scanned. It's all archived. It's all searchable. But would they actually know to go looking there because in my mind it's, it's easy because you wouldn't have to go digging through piles and piles of stuff and drawers and miscellaneous pieces of paper. But for someone who's, who's not as, as tech savvy, I mean, my gosh, they wouldn't even know how to get into my computer because I've got it all file vaulted down. Yeah. So, so how, I mean, I guess, where do you start? Well, you know, this is an interesting one for us, Katie, because usually a lot of the, the stories we tell on this show arise from the fact that I have a family and, you know, having multiple people around accessing the computers creates all sorts of havoc, which is fun to figure out how we get around it. Um, in this case, however, you're the one with the problem because you don't have a bunch of people accessing your computers. and All alone. Uh, yeah. If, yep. you, if you, if you uh, were incapacitated, your parents or your brother, they, they would have a lot of trouble getting through. And so I'm interested to hear how you deal with it. I guess I'll talk really quick about my end is, you know, the finance stuff. I mean, my wife and I, we've been together 20 some years. I mean, we, we have no secrets and she can get into all the finance stuff just as easily as I can. 
And she's slowly over the years come to figure out one password and the Dropbox uh, and then the, the internal record vault where we keep the stuff that doesn't go to Dropbox. So she can already get to most things. But what I did was I set up a um, – we have a safe deposit box and I routinely put a backup drive on of a bunch of the most important things in there. You know, about every six months. I mean, it's not, I don't go crazy. I guess I could do that more often. But also in there is instructions and lists of everything. And also I have what I call go-to nerds. And uh, that's that's you, Katie, and uh, my friend Victor, Victor Kahiao, who used to do Good to know. Yeah, because Victor's in, he's just very close to me. So, and he's, he's already friends with Daisy. And if something happened to me and she had any trouble navigating the, um, the geek empire that I've built, she could, um, he could help her out or, or you would, I'm sure. So uh, I think it's a good idea just to think, you know, what do I have trouble getting access to? And, you know, if something happened to me, would my spouse be able to do that? And if not, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a good idea to have somebody help them so they don't get lost through all this morass? Because the, the good news is, you know, the people listening to the show are very conscientious about computers and they probably have all the records that, you know, in the you know worst case scenario, you get hit by a bus that that the rest of your family is going to be able to get what they need. You know, if you think about people who don't have all these records organized and don't have, you know, paperless systems and all this stuff, they're really in trouble because, you know, they're not going to be able to find any of this stuff. But so in the safe deposit box, in addition, I have a list of the, uh, the ongoing accounts and obligations and, and things that they just should be aware of. And it's really not that hard. This is something that you could probably take care of in, a, in an hour or two. And it's a good time of year to do it right now. And just make sure you tell the people in your life, hey, this is where you can find it. But I'm curious to hear how you do it, because I think for you, it's it's even more of a challenge. Yeah. And, and, and I'll start off by saying, just just because you and Daisy have got it figured out and, and you guys can access everybody's stuff, I, I wouldn't assume that every married couple necessarily does. So I think people need to have that conversation. Um, yeah, for, for here, here's basic, basically my method. I, I don't have a safety deposit box. I, I probably need to look at getting one. I, I do have a pretty good safe, um, that, where I keep hard copies of, of, I actually do have paper, believe it or not. Um, I do keep hard copies of, of certain critical documents because there are some documents that you just need originals of. And in, in that safe, I, I've got, um, you know, things like copies of health insurance policies, um, Copies of wills, copies of powers of attorneys, copies of healthcare surrogates and living wills, um, and and things like that. I, I've I've got all of those things scanned, obviously, but I I do have hard copies just in case somebody needs to grab them very quickly, and and I I also keep a a password list, a critical password list that I I make a point and I've got a, a task to update it as as often as I update my critical passwords, um, and an, and an instruction list. And I think it's important that that instruction list not be overwhelming. So I try to keep it to to one page. And and basically what the instruction list says is, you know, in here you will find these documents. Um, here's a list of passwords. I manage everything in one password. And my family has some familiarity with one password. My dad uses one password. I'm I'm working on my mom. Um and uh, you know, this is how you act because first thing they need to do is get into my computer. This is how you access my computer. This is how you you access my one password. Um, these are a couple of other mission critical passwords that that you may need to know to get into stuff. Um, and then inside one password in the notes feature, 
um, I, I keep a note and, and maybe that's a little morbid, but it just kind of says the title of it is in case of emergency. And I, I reference that in my, my short little note. Cause again, I, I don't want my letter to be, um, you know, this, this big, long cryptic thing. And it's just a list of, um, you know, these are things that you might need to know. These are my monthly obligations. Um, you know, this is how I pay all my bills. This is, this is what you can expect to come. This is, these are the life insurance policies I have. These are, um, you know, this is, this is basically what I've gotten where you can find information. And I do also have a geek list. Um, I've, I've got a name of a, of a local Mac guy here who's a part of my user group and who I know pretty well. Um, and then I've got a, a, I think I've got your name as well on there too, of a couple of people that they can contact if, if they have trouble. And, uh, and I think that's about it. So, and then, and then of course I've given them, um, you know, a key and access information to the safe and just basically said, okay, if something bad happens, here's the key to the safe, you know, kind of in case of emergency break class type thing. Yeah. You know, another thing you can do, and this is somewhat related, but not entirely, uh, Gabe over at Mac Drifter did a post uh, a month or two ago that I thought was really good where he keeps a little database of all of his monthly, you know, recurring charges. And that wouldn't be a bad idea to put in there. I think that'd be a good idea just to keep for yourself because you, yeah, lose that's from- in, that's in my, in case of emergency list, you know, these are my monthly bills. Yeah. But I'm saying just even let's assume you're not getting hit by a bus just to keep track of all these little services that you're paying a dollar a month for and $5 a month, they add up and it's not a bad idea. Uh, but no, I agree. It's, it's a good thing. And one of the features of one password on your Mac is you can export the entire password database to a text file. And that's one of the files that I put on the hard drive that goes in the safe deposit box. So, you know, anybody it's, it's, it's in the clear on, you know, the root drive of that drive. So if someone gets that drive, they can, have passwords to the whole enchilada. Yeah. But, but I like that because I like the fact that you can get all your stuff out. Yeah. So. All right. Well, that was morbid. Yeah, it was kind of, Let, let's <laughs> skip over to um, another subject before we, you know, all start feeling really sad. Okay. You, so we want to talk about social networks again. Uh, now how about backup? Let's do backup now. That's a short one. All right. Let's talk about yeah, backup. We've, we've done entire shows on backup. So, um, I think that we don't need to go into a great detail how to do the backups. Although I think that if you're not doing a regular one, it's the new year and there's no more excuses. Let's get multiple copies of your data. And I think something to consider if, and this is where I think a lot of people fall down is they have a good backup system. They got their time machine working or their time capsule and all of those technologies I think are working better than they've ever worked. I mean, I think time machine is one of the best additions ever made to Mac OS 10 because I can set up a new Mac for any friend, no matter how sophisticated or unsophisticated they are on the computer and know that they're going to routinely have that backup right there on the desk next to them. And it just works. There's no problems. And I've never had that degree of security before. And, you know, everybody listening to the show, you guys are the ones that are doing this for friends and family. So uh, we should all be grateful for it because it's saved bacon for many people in my life. Uh, but I think this is the year, 2013 is the year that we fix the offsite problem, that all of us um, are resistant to going offsite. And there's some emerging technologies, uh, you know, in terms of the online offsite backups. And I don't want to get into the particular services because there's a good argument to be made for a bunch of them. I'm not sure which one I would recommend at this point. I'm using crash plan at the, at the moment, but I've used others in mm-hmm. the past and been pretty happy with them. Um, 
the uh, but I think that it's a time to to look at that. Then then in addition to the offsite online backups, uh, USB hard drives are cheaper than ever. I've come to um, I've done this for a few of my friends that really rely on their computer a lot, and I know how terrible it would be um, as a Christmas present. And I know this is I don't know if what you're going to think of me after you hear this, but I bought them an external hard drive and said, okay, I'm keeping it at my house. And every time you come over, we're going to run a, a, a super duper backup, you know? And, and these are people that are pretty close to me and I see pretty often. And, and they, they seem to like the idea that they've got their own offsite. Now they don't have to think about it. Um, and you know, there's some other products coming out. We've got, you know, there's a, all this talk about uh, the Kickstarter project with the transporter, um, who I believe is going to become a sponsor. So I don't want to be, you know, vague about that, but I, I think they've got a really good product where you can save offsite. Um, but you know, this is the year let's get offsite going this year, guys. If you haven't done it, you know, go to Best Buy and get yourself a little hard drive or sign up for an online service or do whatever floats your boat, but, but get your data somewhere other than your house. I have four rules for backup. I think I can boil all of my backup advice down to four rules. You ready for them? Let's hear it. Okay. Number one, it must be automatic. Because you, from time to time, people won't remember to do stuff. So I say something's got to be automatic, that it just happens. Number two, it's got to be redundant. One backup's not a backup. So I'm sure it's better than nothing. But if one of your drives dies, then you no longer have a backup. Number three, you got to have a copy off-site. Because if all of your backups are sitting right next to each other, then something bad happens. Then you don't have a backup or your primary data source anymore. And then number four, you got to test your backups because backups fail. And Sounds so if like you don't some know good rules to me. Don't know if your backups work, then you don't know. If you so don't, if those you don't are know if they work, you rules. really don't have backups, do you? That's right. Those are my four rules. All right. Hey, let's talk about um, 1Password just a little bit more. Um, okay. And once again, I think this was just a great show to have them on as an exclusive because it just fits with what they do. And uh, they're such a great company. And I really like these new features. And I want to talk about the new version of the iOS app because it's like a discovery for me. I've really enjoyed it. Um, one of the things about the older version was that you had a different password to get in because you could set it up when you first set the app up. And it wasn't necessarily the same as your one password on your Mac. And the way they did it before was you had a simple a code to get into the app and then you had a more complex one to get to deeper data and you could have everything kind of tiered with different levels of security. I like the way they do it now much better. So the way it works now is, uh, and assuming you're syncing through Dropbox, which is what I do, um, I can put in my master one password. It's the same one that I use on my Mac. It's the same great long password that I use and I have memorized. And then once I get into the app, there's a setting to allow it to remember that for a certain amount of time. And then I forget what the exact setting, um, the entry is in the settings on the app, but basically you can, I think you can change it. I think you can make it what you want. Yeah, you can, but I like using it that way. And then you can also have it give you a quick entry code. I I think that's the word they use. And so for the 10 or 15 minutes, however long you set, set it, you can get back into the app with just a four digit code. So you have the benefit of the real high security to get into the app. And then you have the benefit of getting in quickly. Like if you're jumping through different apps, you know, like a lot of times you'll be in one password and you may go over to your browser or you may go over to your bank's custom app or something. And then you come back to one password. Well, it will lock itself understandably and rightfully. But if you have it set up this way, you can get back in very quickly. But if you leave your phone alone for 10 or 15 minutes, uh, it'll go back to the main big lock unlock code to get back in. I just think it's very clever the way they did that. 
And they solved the problem that we all have is that we want it to be secure, but we also want quick access when we're working in it. And I thought that was like a really nice feature. Um, yeah, and, and you can access all of these through these settings. There's a whole security subsetting menu. Um, and I've got my auto lock set at two minutes. If you've got your set at longer than that, you, well, maybe I need to rethink mine or maybe you need to rethink yours. I don't know. No, but that's I, where you. T- I put mine at 10 minutes if you want to know. I mean, oh, 10 because, minutes? Okay. Yeah, I'm in there for 10 minutes, but you still need the four digit code to get back in. So. Yeah, you do. Uh, I do. think I'm fine with which, it. Which I don't have as the same four-digit code that I use to get into my iPhone. Oh, of course not. Right, right. Um, and then you can, you can also choose in there um, whether or not you uh, – how long it is before it, it clears the clipboard, which I really like. I think I've got mine set at the default, which is 90 seconds. So that gives me enough time to copy that password for my bank, go to my bank's website – you know, or not website, their web app or app, whatever it is, um, you know, log in and use that. And then by so the time smart. I'm done with my bank, yeah, it's, it's, so oops, oh, yep. Nope. That password's not there. Don't worry it's about like, it. It's like, you know, it's like you light a fuse to it and it's just going to blow up. <laughs> the, it, um, it should play the mission impossible music. <laughs> and at the end it should wipe it out. So I, so you could pick, it'd be one, it'd be one, you know, rotation of mission impossible or two. Well, we'll put in, um, We'll put in a feature request. I'm, I'm definitely doing that. I'm sending him a note right now. Uh, okay. So another thing about this new app, I, I just really like it, um, is the browser is top-notch. I mean, the whole thing I've been talking about, jumping back and forth between the app, it's really not necessary. People don't – I don't think people take advantage of this enough. You just go into your login and you press the button and it opens a browser that, that runs the uh, runs the uh, the website and inputs your account and password for you. This could almost be my most used browser on my iPhone now. I mean, I use Safari for for quick browsing, and when links open up, it links in there. But if I know, this has enabled me to use, especially my iPad, um, more as a mobile computer, especially with with the holiday shopping. And and keep in mind, David and I have been using the beta longer than it's been out. But I did, um, on Black Friday, I, I would keep my iPad by my bed, and I will admit that I have woken up at odd hours of the night, reached over, picked up my iPad, done some holiday shopping, using passwords that have been stored in one password to get a really good deal and um, put it back on the nightstand, rolled over and gone back to sleep. Was that Is like that sleep shopping? <laughs> <laughs> it could be, you know what? It could be a problem. So we may have to put in another feature request to, to make me like have to do complex math or something yeah. before I can access my password. So far, nothing has shown up at the door that I that I haven't wanted to show up. But at you the don't door, recall but, ordering. <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. But that could be a problem. Well, so. it is a it is a really good browser, and you know, so these guys have just they've sweat all the little details and they've thought through the workflows of how people use it and how they want to securely use uh, these devices to get onto the internet. And this one app solves all those problems for you. And, and that ignores all the other stuff that it does, the storing of notes and the creation of passwords. And now the, now you can store pictures of your credit cards and whatnot. That'll, that'll sync over to your database on your iOS device. They just really up their game, uh, a fantastic application. You know, it's interesting. I I feel that one uh, password and Agile Bits, the company behind it, is one of the good guys. They they are some very smart people that spend a lot of time thinking about making great products. And the thing that amazes me is that One Password Three is is a really great app, and they still came out and they just they just made this amazing upgrade to it. And I think it's really something when a company that's on top of its game comes out and does something better. I don't think that's easy to do. 
And uh, these guys managed to do it. So go check it out. And and thanks, 1Password, for supporting the podcast. And and gang, it's New Year's. If you haven't got on 1Password or got your family on 1Password, please go do so. It will be uh, for your betterment. Yeah. All right. Now can we talk about social networks? Because i got a lot to say yeah, about and that. I have almost nothing to say here. So All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to get on my soapbox. Okay. i got to be careful not to overshare. But... People, you need to not share every freaking detail about your life on your social networks and leave it wide open for anybody to see. It is just embarrassing. I mean, really. You sound angry, Katie. <laughs> you got to like well, tone I'm it down not, a little bit. <laughs> I am I'm not angry. I am I am actually thankful that that people don't know how to lock down their social networks because that means that I can go in and stalk them. Um, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. The things that people will put out there just open for everybody to see for the whole world. This stuff doesn't go away unless you lock it down. And sometimes even then it doesn't go away. I mean, it is just ridiculous. I mean, I think we've saved ourselves a lot of trouble by just bothering to type somebody's name into Google. Yeah, sadly, we do it in our office, too. Every opposing counsel and opposing party and even our own clients, potential clients. The um, Yeah, before uh, you decide if you want to, you know, go to bat for somebody or hire somebody or whatever or, or date somebody or, yeah. I think I told the story once on the show about I was about to take a deposition and my very smart paralegal came in and said, last night she was at a wedding and wrote on Facebook how drunk she got, <laughs> the opposing counsel. And, um yeah. You know, I'm not proud of the fact that the deposition went longer than than it normally would have, and by the end of the day, she was barely paying attention. And uh, and you got some information that maybe you shouldn't have. I'm just gonna stop right there. Okay, we'll stop. We'll stop there. But um, Tech Hive had a really interesting article that I'm gonna link in the show notes. And it and, and Facebook is the one that that we harp on, but it's 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 not just Facebook. It's there is all kinds of information on now, whether it's uh, Facebook or Instagram or Foursquare or Twitter or all all of these other various sites where we are plugging in information about our lives all the time. And so TechHive hired, um, I don't know whether these people were officially private investigators or whether they were just techie people, to go out and cyberstalk some of their writers as a as an assignment and write about the experiment and the information that these people found out um, ab- about their targets was was scary when they were out of town what they were doing um, uh, their their habits where they shop where where they frequent where they go get their coffee uh, in in the amount of information that was available if someone was truly trying to stalk you um, versus doing it for a news assignment, you, you've got to be careful out there. So I, I'm going to throw a link in the show notes to a Lifehacker article that I saw. Almost all of these these networks, and I'm not saying stop using them like, like David is, because I really do like Facebook. I don't post very much on Facebook, but I like it as a way to keep up with a lot of my friends that I don't get to see very often when, when they have a kid or when they're getting married or when they have big life events. You know, I like seeing what is what is going on in their lives, and I think it's a great service for things like that. Um, you know, when when they get drunk at parties and all, I you know, it's interesting to know too. But um, I, I I like being able to connect with these people. But you, you've got to be able to lock it down. So the Lifehacker article has um, links to all of the various websites, not just Facebook, but um, YouTube, Vimeo, um, Foursquare, Flickr. 
all of the various social sharing sites where you can um, get direct links to your privacy settings and lock down. And I went through there and most of mine were locked down, but I found a few that weren't. Like I was getting all kinds of YouTube spam for a YouTube account that I had signed up for at one point. And I had found that there was a way that I could lock down my privacy settings to avoid that and only get email from people that I was friends with on YouTube, which ends up being nobody. And so those are services that you just need to go through and do an audit of all of your privacy settings on all the various sites and then be aware that they, that they change regularly. Um, But specifically on Facebook, I kind of had a list of four or five things that, that you needed to look out for. Um, Number one, you, you just need to know what is publicly available. If someone who is not your friend types your name into Facebook, what do they see? So what information are you publicly broadcasting? In my opinion, in, unless you're a public figure or quasi-public figure or you know, you're know you trying to use Facebook as a promotion tool and you're very aware of what you're publicly posting, then it should be very little to nothing is publicly available to somebody who is not connected to you. Um, if you've made the mistake and you've made things in the past publicly available and now you want to go back and fix that, Facebook actually has a setting in the privacy settings where you can go back and limit all of your old posts so you can you can restrict them and it will as by default change all of the settings on your older posts so that they're no longer publicly available. Um, another one that I really like is uh, again almost none of these are on by default because because pe- Facebook wants you to overshare is to require the pre-approval of tags. So if somebody tags you in a photo or if somebody tags you at an event, you've got to say yes, I'm going to allow this tag. And that just, you know, limits those embarrassing pictures of you at various, you know, at the office holiday party or whatever. Well, that's, you know, that's uh, a great idea because that's, I've tried to play with Facebook in the past and I've tried to keep it to just my family. But like I had uh, a year or two ago, it was Christmas morning at like five in the morning. And you know what I look like at five in the morning? I'm not very pretty in the afternoon. <laughs> in the five in the morning, I look terrible. I'm wearing like a, over, you know, dad, every Christmas we wear a big overshirt and a little cap and it's kind of weird. But anyway, so my, somebody in my family posts and like links to me on that. I'm like, oh, that's just great. You know, I had no power over that. And now this picture attached to me is all over the internet. And that was for me like this, the point where I said, I'm out again. You know, I just couldn't do it. So that would have been a nice thing. Yeah. I don't know that that was available at the time, but it, it is available now. And it can be a little bit of a pain. Like my cousin tagged me a couple of weeks ago at my grandfather's 80th birthday party. And that's fine. You know, I went in and I I didn't see it until two weeks later. So I went in and I approved the tag, whatever. But, you know, no harm, no foul. Um, the other thing you can do is you can turn off search engine linking to your timeline. I think by default it's on. So if somebody types your name in Google, it won't bring up your Facebook profile. And the other thing that I do is, is because, you know, everybody expects you to have a Facebook account and, um, you know, it kind of can be that awkward, you know, it gets to be awkward. Twitter has done this too. Oh, why aren't you friending me on Facebook or why aren't you following me on Twitter or why won't you accept my friend request? So, you know, sometimes there's that social awkwardness and, and David, I get you just avoid it by saying I'm not even participating at all. And maybe you're smarter than all of us, but I've, um, you can set up groups, uh, Facebook groups. They're, you know, kind of what Google uses circles for. So same concept applies to customize restriction based on groups. So, you know, you can set up a group colleagues or, you know, work colleagues or a professional group where, um, you know, you can ultra restrict 
sharing to a, a particular group. So you can still be, quote, friends with them, but um, really limit your sharing with a particular group. Yeah. So, and just to, I guess I want to clarify, I'm not against social networks. I, I use Twitter a lot and um, I, I'm just very choosy about which ones I, I go into. And I think I'm a little overprotective about this stuff. Uh, I think as the generations move along, privacy is going to become less and less of an interest. And I know that there are benefits of Facebook that I'm losing out on. I'm I'm sure I could sell more Max Barkey Field Guides if I was on Facebook and had a page and could get the word out to people that way. But I just don't want to deal with it. And I just don't want to give them that much information about me. I'm just not sure about the company. And every, you know everybody makes their own choices. My wife loves her Facebook account. And she loves her Foursquare account. Her and her pals, for you know, they keep track of their points when they do their Foursquare chickens, and they really enjoy it. And it's like something that kind of brings them together. So I get it. I just don't want to be part of that. Yeah, and and I get in some respects, you know, we are preaching to the Mac Power Users Choir. My guess is most of the people listening to this podcast are are probably already aware of these things and. Um, maybe except for a little bit of tweaking, have have these things um, locked down. But your brothers don't, your sisters don't, your parents don't, um, the other people don't. When I know my brother recently took a job as a public school teacher, his Facebook account was wide open. And I was like, uh, you know, you're going to be teaching 12 and 13-year-olds. Let's sit down and look at your Facebook privacy settings. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, my niece who's a teacher – her Facebook is so locked down. I think, you know, it's more locked down than the NASA, you know, or, or, uh, or the CIA Facebook account because she's afraid she teaches first graders. She doesn't want the parents looking at her Facebook account. Exactly. Um, right. uh, let's go on to this next point, though, because I think this is one that even some of the Mac Power users may not be aware of. And that's the whole idea of of GPS data in your photos. Yeah, because I know I like to take pictures. I especially building my new house recently. I've taken a lot of pictures of projects around the house. I don't necessarily want people to know the GPS coordinates to my house. Yeah. So you got to be careful about that. I listed last night. I, um, I uploaded a picture to Instagram of a wrapping job. I did. I actually, I get a lot of joy out of wrapping presents, Katie. It's really weird. Would Would you come? Cause I have a stack of stuff on my kitchen table. It needs to be wrapped. Yeah. I, I like, I don't know, like 10 years ago, I bought Daisy a nice gift and, I was kind of last minute and they, I wanted to pay someone to wrap it at the store and it was like $10. I'm like, are you kidding me? $10 to wrap a present. And she said, yeah. I said, well, okay, well then you need to give me a lesson about how to wrap a present correctly. And she did. And now I'm really into it for years. It's like uh, almost like a, a meditation practice to sit there and just wrap it perfectly. But I think I'm, I'm straying from the subject here. Right. So I took a picture of it and uploaded it. The first thing I always do, make sure that the GPS tag data is turned off before I put it on Instagram. Because if you do, if you don't do that, then someone can open that picture and get the GPS coordinates to my living room. Now, do you actually turn off the, uh, like if, for example, if you were to take a picture of the uh, guy blowing your driveway right outside your window. You can hear that? <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, sorry. I'll go ahead and mute just, while I, you're talking. No, I just wanted to point that out to the listeners who are aware that's what that is. Um, if if you wanted to um, 
because there are some benefits to having GPS tagging on your photos, especially if you're on a trip and you want to use some of the built-in features of Aperture or iPhoto, do you actually turn off the GPS data on the camera app or turn off the location data and settings of the camera app? Or do you just turn off the location data settings in uh, Twitter and in Instagram and in stuff like that and you find that that's enough? Because I've just said, you know, nope, I'm turning off the GPS settings, the location settings for my camera app, and, and that way I know nothing is getting... Um, tagged with my GPS data, but I'm also a little bit sad because that means none of my photos for my own personal use get GPS data. Yeah, well, I, I'm actually, I turn it on uh, at my camera level, but I turn it off at the sharing level. So like in Instagram, you actually have to tell it to add location data. And in Twitter, you can do that as well. So I, I just don't share the data through those services. And I'm not as freaked out about it as a lot of people. So where some people like me are really freaked out about Facebook. I'm not as freaked out about, you know, where my pictures are taken. And quite often when I share pictures, it's usually when I'm not home. It's usually when I'm at Disneyland or, you know, on a trip or something. And I'm only there for that moment. So it doesn't matter to me. All right. So you think that's enough. If you go into settings and then uh, location services, and both turn off the location. I can, so I can turn it on, on camera. If I turn it off on all of my sharing apps, but then also specifically make sure it's turned off on my Twitter and Instagram settings and things like that. You think I'm good. I'm not broadcasting the location of my living room. That's good enough for me. I think everybody has to make their own choice. That's a safe answer. (laughs) Well, I don't mean to be uh, that way. I just, I'm happy. Uh, I like having the data on. I like it when I open Aperture and I see all these pictures, I see little pins all over the place. I like that. Yeah, I, I do too. And I don't. So um, maybe I'll try that for a while. And if somebody shows up at my door, I'll stop doing that. And then you'll come looking for me. <laughs> then I'll come looking for you, <laughs> Or you'll David. give them my address. <laughs> All right. Well, that's enough about that. Um, uh-huh. uh, so here's another one. Uh, I think, you know, it's a new year. And we spend a lot of time about being productive on our Macs, on this show, and our iPads, and our iOS devices. Something that we have as customers of Apple products that a lot of people, I think, tend to forget is iLife. And there's some really amazing stuff in there. And I would say a good resolution for you going to next year is find some new avenue of creativity in your life because you've got the tools to do it. I was just uh, playing in GarageBand on the iPad the other day, and I have some music background, so I have some understanding about it. But... I gave it to one of my daughters who doesn't, and she made a really cool song with no music knowledge. And you could too. So, you know, open GarageBand on your Mac or your iPad and start fiddling with it. Or, you know, open iMovie. You know something you can do right now because it's a new year. I'm sure you've got some video you took of your family uh, over the holidays. Open up iMovie either on the iPad or on your Mac and go into the trailer section. And I think a lot of people don't even realize this is there. So Apple went into, um, they hired some professional editors and they created these template movie trailers. And then they went into a um, sound studio and they had an orchestra and they recorded background music. And all you have to do is drag and drop movie clips into this uh, trailer and it tells you exactly, it'll clip the length to how long it needs. So it matches precisely with the music. And then it, you can type in your credits. And at the end, you get like a two-minute video that looks like a movie trailer for something you did with your family. And they've got ones that are like spy movies and action movies and romantic comedies and every kind of movie you can think of. And I do these, and people think that I'm brilliant and 
they think I'm so smart. And they're like, boy, you really are a good editor. How did you do all that? And the fact is it took me all of about 10 minutes. Uh, so go make yourself some movie trailers or uh, go uh, make a photo book or, you know, go write your own book. Do something creative. I mean, this is a great time to try and get one of those practices. And using this technology, it's really not that hard. I am a really big fan of the photo books, and I've given I, I gave quite a few as as Christmas gifts this year. So I I agree. I, I don't do so much with the music as you know, but I'm a huge fan of the photo books, and and those just make great great gifts. Yeah. I agree. The That's music good. is easy good though. Musician. You don't you don't have to be a musician to get in there and do it. They make it really accessible, and and the movie trailers is another thing where it's like it, it's just so ridiculously simple. I I expected a lot more people would use that feature when it came out, and I think just you know people haven't gone into it. There's people who like to edit video and they're going to already know how to do this stuff. And there's people who are intimidated by it. And if you're one of the second category, go make a movie trailer and you're going to be amazed how good it looks. All right, Katie, let's right. Go, let's go into some feedback. Some feedback. All right. Um, well, I got a, I got a question from um, speaking of photos, this is kind of on topic from Gannon, because one of the, one of my big projects this past year has been um, my grandparents' slides. They have thousands of slides that were just sitting in slide carousels up in their closets. And um, we went through and got all of those slides scanned and, and have been making photo books for those slides this past year. And, and just having those, those photos digitized for the family has been wonderful. And Gannon wanted to know, um, did we scan those slides ourselves or did we have them professionally scanned? Did we put them with ScanSnap? What, what did we do? Um, first question. ScanSnap does not scan slides, so can't do it with that. ScanSnap's not really designed to scan photos. I will admit I have thrown photos in the ScanSnap before. Um, you can there, you can you know send iPhoto from the ScanSnap, but it's it's really not designed for that purpose. But I, I certainly don't think it can do slides because um, you have to have special equipment to do slides. We tried to do them ourselves initially. Um, my, I, I hope he doesn't listen to this. Um, a family member went out and bought um, a slide scanner, and they're very expensive to get a good one, especially when you're thinking about doing a couple, uh, a thousand slides. Um, and, you know, good ones will cost a thousand dollars or more. And we figured, oh, well, it's going to cost us a couple thousand dollars to, to scan all of these. We'll, um, from a professional service, we'll go buy the scanner equipment. You know, even if we're only able to sell it for half of what we bought it for, we'll still have saved money on the deal. But, you know, candidly, it just didn't work well. It was incredibly time consuming. Um, it, we didn't get great quality because the, the, the just either the settings weren't configured right or something. We, we were doing something wrong and we didn't get good quality out of them. And we ultimately ended up having to rescan at a professional service. It just took forever. So we just, you know, went down and bit the bullet and it ultimately cost us about 50 cents a slide to get them scanned. So um, several hundred dollars, but those those memories are, are priceless. We ended up going with a local company as opposed to mailing them out. I'm going to try the mail out. Um, I gave it as a gift to uh, somebody else, the gift of um, scanning photos through a mail out service. So I'll have something to compare to. Um, the more you do, the cheaper it is. So you know, what's your time worth? So I'm, I'm going to say outsourcing it for me was, was the better decision. Um, you know, you'll have to decide what your time is worth and, you know, what your concerns are with the photos. One of the things that made me feel a little bit better is we used a local company. So it wasn't like they were shipping them somewhere and there was the possibility of them getting lost in transit. Yeah. We did the same thing when my mother passed away, we um, sent the movies and in in our case, we shipped it to New Jersey from California. But the uh, company I picked, and I'm really sorry about this, the 
We recorded early today in the thoughts that we would avoid the sound of gardening, but apparently that didn't work. But anyway, so I shipped them away, and I picked them because they had very specific details on their website about what scanning equipment they used, and it was just top-notch stuff that that I don't have access to for scanning photographs. And um, and it just seemed like a very reputable company, so we you know, went ahead and put them in a box and shipped them out there. And a month or so later, we got all the pictures back, and we got some very nice scans of, of all our family pictures. Do you remember which company you used if you were happy? You know, I don't. I'll have to look. Maybe I'll look okay. and put it in the show notes. But um, all right. they were based out of New Jersey. Okay. Um, we, we also heard from Raphael. We talked about the Belkin outlet. And, um, and he made a good point about, I guess, in some of the new modern wall mount uh, sockets, that Belkin device won't work because it's got a screw in the center and there's a screw in the center of a traditional outlet that you screw into. And apparently some of the outlets they make don't have that anymore. I, that's news to me. Um, all of my outlets do except for my GFIs. Yeah. So this won't work where I have a ground fault interrupter, but otherwise it works on all my outlets. So, but it's something to watch out for because it does have that. I don't know if it's a screw. It's a, yeah, it's a screw or a plug or something, but it does have something in the middle that if you, if you don't have a place for a screw in the middle, it won't work. Um, we heard from aware that. and we heard from Steve, and we had talked about the Jambox, which I really like. I think it's really fantastic. And he had said, you know, the one thing we didn't point out is that the battery's not removable, and that the that the company does not have any plan to send you uh, or upgrade your battery once it goes bad. So, you know, you're going to get a couple years of cordless use out of it, and then it's going to become a corded battery. Um, Mm, I actually got a jam box for Christmas, and now this makes me a little bit nervous. Well, I, don't, I kind of wish I'd known this before. I don't know that that's going to be any different with any other vendor. Um, I got my sister one from Logitech, and I looked at the box after I saw this email, and I don't see that there's any way to replace the battery in that either. Um, I just think that these things are going to work for a couple of years on, on battery, and then they're not going to work on battery anymore. Um, uh, in my life, the, um, the jam box is usually plugged in anyway, but... Uh, that's something to be aware of. Um, and the Michelle gave us some feedback going back to our um, presentation workflow show that we did with Les. And we talked about that that time that there was really no presenter remote that was compatible with the iPad other than the iOS remote for um, for the iPhone that Apple put out. And apparently there is now, and she um, uh, points us to, and I'm, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, uh, starchy, screechy? No, it's satichy. S-A-T-E-C-H-I. Satechi? Yeah, okay. it's a Bluetooth uh, smart pointer. And apparently, you can have your your iPad connected to a projector and advanced slides at the same time. That's pretty awesome. And uh, Do you have one of these yet? I just got one in the mail yesterday. <laughs> oh, my goodness. When she, uh, when she wrote in, I'm like, I could use this so often. And I, um, I ordered one. I didn't, I didn't even ask for it as a Christmas present. I just went crazy and bought it for myself. I think it cost me about 40 bucks. And as we record this, I ha- it's still in the box. But I will be posting a Max Sparky before the show goes live about whether or not it works. So I guess that gives me an excuse to tell you to go you know, subscribe at Max Sparky. All right. There you go. Well, that's going to wrap us up for the year, really, for Mac Power users. Um, and what a great find, year it was. It has been a great year. And uh, we will be back next year. Never fear. 
you can find links to everything that we talked about in the show notes by visiting our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at the 5x5 site at 5x5.tv slash MPU. Uh, and keep in mind, uh, we are actually in progress of redesigning the MacPowerUsers.com site. So if you have any comments or critiques or suggestions for that, shoot them my way. That's, that's one of my uh, projects kind of during the, the slow period over the new year. Uh, you can find us on Twitter uh, at Mac Power Users, or Katie's at Katie Floyd, and I'm at Max Sparky. We're both also on app.net. Yep, same usernames. And I've got to just, since we talk so much about it at the show, I'm going to f- plug our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Mac Power Users. Um, thanks to our exclusive sponsor for this episode, 1Password. Um, and, you know, David, there was one New Year's resolution that everybody has that we did not talk about this show. That would be right. And uh, that's because we're going to talk about it next show. We thought it would be appropriate at the end of the year. And uh, after everybody has recovered and survived, we're going to talk about geek fitness next episode. Thought it would be appropriate to start the year off. And uh, so we will see you then. All right. See you next week.